What's great about campaign work is that we are living in just incredible, and I mean that as in like unbelievable times in our country, and it can make you feel so impotent. And one of the things that I love the most about working on campaigns is the sense of empowerment that comes from it. I mean, from all the ridiculous amount of money that gets spent on campaigns right now, it can really still can come down to neighbors talking to neighbors and people knocking on each other's doors. This is Surviving Elections, a mini-series on Healing Justice podcast. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and we're focusing on the 2018 midterm elections and the intersections of electoral politics, social movements, and well-being and sustainability all month long. Today's topic is that we are exploring whether campaign work has to be this way. We are talking about building transformative campaign culture with two women campaign managers, Nancy Leeds, who is the founder of the hilarious Tumblr and insightful campaign advice blog, Campaign Sick, and Becca Rast, a social movement organizer turned campaign manager for Jess King's congressional campaign in Pennsylvania. You can read more about their bios in the show notes, AKA the description of this episode. We've been sharing election survival tips with our email list too, which you can join at healingjustice.org elections. Last week, we sent out an exercise about broadening perspective and what happens when our bodies confront constant crisis and have small tra- traumatic reactions. Um, and how we can begin to broaden our perspective in such a way to support ourselves for work over the long haul. Join our email list to get this week's election survival tip at healingjustice.org elections. This mini series is sponsored in part by Groundswell Action Fund. I'm here with their director of civic engagement, Kanita Toffee. We are the largest fund in the country centering women of color led 501c4 work giving people an easy way to donate to organizations that are not just talking to voters before an election, but are also engaging voters year-round in the ongoing work of advancing real justice and democracy. We are loving hearing more on the podcast about the important work happening at Groundswell Action Fund and with their amazing grantees. Let's hear from one of those grantees now. I'm Destiny Lopez, and I work at the All Action Fund. Uh, we are a national campaign launched in July 2015. We are bold and groundbreaking, um, and we build political power to lift bans that deny abortion coverage. I'm really proud that we're the first and only coalition led by women of color that is mobilizing to repeal the Hyde Amendment and to advance reproductive justice. And as someone who is um, Latina identified, who's been doing this work for almost 20 years now, it's really my privilege and honor to lead this organization that gives my community, other communities of color, um, a voice on uh, political issues, on, uh, on issues around abortion coverage and access. Um, Our goal is really to harness this renewed energy we're feeling to dismantle economic barriers to abortion care. And our strategy is about building deep relationships with voters. So we're not just flying in on the eve of an election and leaving the day after the election. You know, we're really in spaces, in states at the national level over the long term. 
and we we center people of color and younger voters because they're the ones who are most impacted by abortion coverage bans and we recognize that they have been really largely ignored by other groups that engage voters on reproductive rights issues in particular and frankly we're the future of the american electorate and so we feel like we need to be doing the work to get folks registered to get them to go out to the polls and to get them to understand how this issue impacts our communities. Our work is is intentional and intentionality and thereby transformation can take time. Um, and so I, I always ask myself, can we be better about incorporating healing? And the answer is absolutely. Um, politics can move at such a rapid pace and others often want us to take the ex politically expedient route to their end goal. And it can be really challenging for us um, to not get caught up in it. But we try to take a breath, literally and figuratively, and really resettle into these core values that I talked about, um, reminding ourselves of why we do this work and who we do it for and with. And for me, um, you know, you know, as I said, I'm a Latina, but I'm also a mother. And so I'm doing this work for my family and for my community because we are impacted by um, these abortion coverage bans and other restrictions on abortion access. I do it for my daughter and now my seven-month-old son because I don't want them to live in a world where they can't access abortion because of where they live or how much money they make. Um, and so sometimes it feels like it's really necessary, like a, a meditative process that we have to undertake where we're, we have to stop and breathe and settle and reflect. And we have to do this over and over again, it feels like, particularly now, so we aren't swept up in this political reality that we didn't create. And, you know, we have to be gentle with ourselves and with each other while we're doing it. Um, you know, I think our team is small but mighty and definitely a work in progress when it comes to healing for ourselves. Um, but I think we're getting better at recognizing when we are caught in someone else's political cycle or a vision that's about how they think the, the work should look as opposed to how we want to create it and the world that we want to see. There has never been a more critical time to ensure that women of color have the resources to move the change that is needed in these times. Join us and these amazing women by visiting bit.ly forward slash action. Thank you to Juanita Toffee and Destiny Lopez of All Above All for that important message. Our first guest today, Nancy Leeds, has worked on Democratic campaigns since 2006 and has worked on races of every size from statewide to city council in every region of the country, from LA to Cambridge to Little Rock. She can be found tweeting campaign truth at CampaignSick on Twitter. You'll hear us talk about the memes on her Tumblr page, and there are links to those memes in the show notes. You also hear her try to remember how many memes there are on the Tumblr at this point. And after we recorded together, I looked it up. There are 1,683 pages of memes, and there are 10 memes per page. So she's right that she has over 16,000 posts on the Tumblr, which is unbelievable. Um, you'll hear us be completely and totally unclear as to whether it's pronounced GIF or JIF. Um, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
I am so glad that you're here because I have gotten so much entertainment and um, like joy, but like the particular brand of joy that is also deeply despairing um, <laughs> from uh, from following Campaign Sick and for, first the Tumblr where there's just like pages and pages of hilarious, hilarious gifts uh, about campaign life. And then also sort of clicking through and reading the thoughtful writing and reflection that you do about how to run campaigns well um, and how to take care of each other along the way. And for those who aren't familiar with Campaign Sick, um, I, we'd love to hear from you just sort of what led you to create this and how did it start? So I started with the blog. I started it in 2010 uh, when I was on the last campaign I was going to be on before I went back to grad school. And part of it was that I wanted to show that I had a blog for my grad school applications. Um, but part of it was that I knew I was really going to miss campaign culture. Uh, so I started doing that. And, you know, I had a couple of solid readers. It didn't really get much traction. And then um, during my first year of grad school, the uh, Ryan Gosling, feminist Ryan Gosling meme sort of took off. And uh, I originally made the Tumblr as the um, Ryan Gosling for campaign sort of meme among, along the same lines. Um, and then that really, really took off. Um, that, and then people started following that and reading my blog and submitting their own, um, which was amazing. It was great. And then um, the gift sort of came later as that became the popular internet culture thing to do. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the other ones that, uh, some of the themes that you see in the submissions that you get. And do you know at, at, at this point how many posts you have on the Tumblr? Oh, man, I know you asked me that. It's like, it's crazy. It's like 16,000. It's a hugely high number. Did you say 16,000? It's something maybe, yeah, it's more than 1,600. Yeah, it might be like 16,000 because I um, I have it auto-publish five a day and it's been going for like, um, you know, for a long time. Plus sometimes okay. I'll publish more. It's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot. That's what we need to know. It's a lot. It's many thousands. Um, okay, so let's talk about the themes that you see. So I see one of them is like um, this meme that says, I, I didn't vote because I didn't know anything about the candidates. And then we see Kristen Bell saying, that's the grossest sentence I've ever heard. So what is this one about? <laughs> um, well, so a huge theme uh, of submissions, of conversation in the campaign world is people who like self-righteously refuse to participate in the process. I'm the first person to say that, you know, our system is extremely flawed, particularly when it comes to things like voting rights. Um, but I also believe that the way to make it better is by more of the right people participating. So when people say, I'm not political in this way that's like, oh, because politics is dirty and I'm above it. It's like, well, you know, do you have, do you visit doctors? Do you breathe air? Like, do you work in a work environment? Because by just being a person in this world, everything you do um, is political. You're making, you know, politics is all around us and affecting our daily lives. And it's a huge 
it's a very privileged thing to say I'm not political and to refuse to participate in the process because things are fine for you. So mm-hmm. huge frustration for people on campaigns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. The next one is um, uh, this one just about people being mean to campaign workers. So there's a meme about... It says, when someone calls the phone bank back and yells about getting called, and then it's like a little cartoon image. I don't know who this cartoon is. Do you? Archer. Archer. Okay. I don't know cartoons like that. Okay. Yeah. So that, um, one is, that one is a submission, though, actually. Yeah. I realized after I sent it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so Archer's saying, yeah, hang on, you're breaking up and then throws the phone at the wall and the phone shatters. Um, <laughs> what do you see coming in about like folks being cruel to campaign workers? Yeah, so um, I actually think that this is sort of the central reason that the Tumblr has gotten so much traction. I always say, and it sounds a little strange, that being a campaign worker is a lot like being a woman in this world in a lot of ways, because people just sort of expect you to subjugate your own feelings in every situation. And that like the brave thing is supposed to be to just sort of sit there and take it because you can't, when you're a campaign worker, you can't say anything. You know, someone's rude to you. You're representing the campaign. So in my real life, when I might tell someone to, you know, go play in traffic, that's not something I can do when I'm representing my candidate. Um, And I think it's the same sort of like quiet desperation that a lot of women, women feel about, you know, if I, if I, you know, tell everyone off who is obnoxious to me, first of all, I'll be exhausted and I won't get anything else done all day. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you know, it's not it, like, it's just not going to be productive for me, even though it would be cathartic in the moment. Um, the, all of that is to say that because I wrote this blog when I was in grad school or I started the Tumblr when I was in grad school and I wasn't on a campaign, I could speak more freely about that kind of stuff. Mm. And I think people really latched on to that because no one, you know, everyone was sort of joking with the people on their own campaigns and their friends about this kind of behavior and just how ridiculous people could be. But um, you know, then there was like, oh, this is a thing that happens nationally and people felt seen by what other people were submitting. Um, so I think that this particular uh, GIF or GIF, as I'm told it's pronounced, um, <laughs> is really central to why the tumblers become popular. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really curious about that. I, I recently... Um I heard this phrase trauma bonding, which is uh, certainly a, a little bit, a little bit diesel or a little, a little bit too intense for, for what we're talking about. Um, but is an interesting thought about like, what are the ways in which shared negative experiences actually become like a critical bonding ingredient that creates shared identity? And I'm curious as you see, you know, uh, the, the gifts coming in, like, and also obviously working on campaigns, what do you think about sort of the the weird bonding experience of actually going through those kinds of, um, of extreme conditions together? That is a great question. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about that over the last cycle as campaign culture is kind of changing. And I think a couple of things. Certainly there are 
just physically, emotionally, very stressful aspects of being on a campaign. But it's also bonding over this shared passion. I mean, especially as a field organizer, like you just get to be so visibly idealistic together in a way that's not that's not something that you see every day. And then it's just, you know, it's ridiculous because it's such a, a sprint and a tight deadline. Like it's the MacGyver figuring out how to solve a problem at the last minute of it. So I think it's just all this like emotional tangle of all of that that leads to bonding. Um, but the other piece that came to mind is I do think, you know, there's this movement toward um, setting some boundaries around what's asked of people on campaigns, particularly those who are just starting out. Um, and I know you're talking to Campaign Workers Guild later in the series, which is fantastic. And one of the things that I hear or that I heard when um, one of the campaigns I was working on that I was managing unionized from people was like this idea of I had to walk 10 miles uphill in the snow when I was a kid, so you should too. And this is going to change the way that campaigns feel and the culture. And I was like, yeah, it should. Like, do you remember? We were exhausted. Like, I was like physically ill on those campaigns. So, um, you know, I think that it can be a, a very good thing. And I wouldn't, now that I've done them, trade those moments in my organizing history for anything. But I also think that, you know, there is enough drama that will naturally occur on campaigns. Like, we are not in danger of it not being stressful enough. Yeah, that's so true. I love that you raised this because I definitely had that experience um, when we were working with CWG to unionize uh, the Cynthia Nixon campaign. And I t I'll talk a little bit more about this in that episode. But um, there, there were people who were actually really open about like, wow, when we first thought about organizing and trying to improve our working conditions, my thought was like, well, I had to go through it. So everyone else should have to go through it too. Yeah. And, um, and really like, walking that out with people who ended up uh, really being great champions in the union, um, but but had to take a minute around that, right? Because, you know, when you've climbed those kinds of hurdles, it's it can sometimes be hard to extend better conditions to somebody else. But ultimately, that's that's what we're fighting for. That's what we're fighting to win at scale, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally have the same thing. Mm. Yeah, and I'm curious about like what do you think are you know there's certainly there's there's a whole backlog of uh, gifts about yard signs that you can find on the blog and just like like hilarious common frustrations in campaign offices, um, but I'm 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 curious about what do you think are some of the most grave um, concerns when you think about transforming campaign culture. Um, what are the couple of things that stand out to you as the most urgent and the most critical to be addressed? Oh, boy. Um, well, one thing that I have loved, and I know that you're talking to Campaign Workers Guild, so I will try to not make this episode about that, is that they would require all of their campaigns to have sexual harassment training and a protocol. Um, and that's something that was never in place when I was a person on a campaign, and that's a really good example or I guess when I was a more less senior person on a campaign, I should say. And that's something, it's a really good example of the like 
intersection for me of being a campaign person and being a woman that's like, I have a feeling that this is not right. Either that something is sexual harassment or it's not harassment, but it's gendered and I'm being talked to or dealt with in this way because I'm a woman. And I'm just going to eat that because, you know, for the good of the campaign. So that's one thing I see changing. Um, And I do think, you know, I've been beating this drum for a while about working smarter and rather than longer. There are absolutely days that you need to put in 12 and 14 hour days on campaigns. That's just reality. But this sort of bravado of bragging about like, oh, I was in the office this long. And like, that's just being in the office for the sake of being in the office and saying that you were there rather than using your time efficiently and actually eating and sleeping sometimes. Um, That is something I would like to see change. Um, And I think we're in a different culture and a different economy and a different life now. Like we're people, everyone who works on campaigns or most people who work on democratic campaigns, they don't have a wife at home cooking them dinner because their wife is also working on campaigns or is doing something else. So it's, you know, this culture, the way that, this sort of organically came about um, decades ago still needs rethinking as sort of culture shifts and things change. Yeah, I know that's one of the themes too on the Tumblr is the old boys club piece. Yeah, um, and I have to say a lot of that's me because I um, I have an MPA, I'm a master's certificate in gender and public policy. And so that's sort of just the lens through which I naturally view things, but I, especially this cycle, um, when I've been managing larger campaigns on my own, I am floored by just the number of conference calls where I'll realize I'm the only woman on this call and it'll be 10 or 15 people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or in a meeting, you know, I'm the only woman who's done this. Or I had a consultant on one of my last campaigns say to me that he didn't like my tone. And I was like, would you... Would would you ever say that to my husband, who's also a campaign manager? Like, I just, there's still a lot of, um, especially in the upper echelons, there's still a lot of gender dynamics at play on campaigns. Um, and also an incredibly disproportionately, like nationally, just incredibly disproportionately white campaign staff as opposed to what our party actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you're, I mean, you're in a position of some relative power as a campaign manager, right? And you've been doing this work for a long time. What are the things that you are trying to do differently um, to change that? Um, that's a great question. So um, one thing I try to do on my current campaigns, I try to get everyone to speak at our morning staff meetings. Uh, and I know that sounds like a little thing, but it's really important to me that people who are call time managers and finance assistants and just starting out feel like they have a voice in, in part of the organization and that people, you know, I ask everyone to talk about what they're working on that day because I want people to understand the value that every single person on the campaign brings. So there's a culture of respect rather than trickle down stress. Um, So that's something that's important to me. I also, um, whether I'm on a campaign that is unionized or not, whether I'm managing one, I try to be very intentional about making sure people know that they're not going to be penalized for self-care. So saying, you know, I just say, you know, if you need 
we're going into the crunch time. Everyone go get a flu shot. Go get your oil changed. You know, go, if you need a morning off, like, let me know and take it now so that we're revved up. Um, And so I try to proactively offer that stuff because I know the culture isn't for people to speak up and ask for it when they need it. And I'm a big believer that that's not just a good thing sort of emotionally, but it's a good thing for productivity because you can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah. And speaking of which, what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, So I was in fact very reticent to come back on the campaign trail. Um, I sort of procrastinated on managing a congressional campaign, if that makes sense, because I'm a person who has health issues and I know how just physically and emotionally draining campaigns can be. And I met with some people who are older than me, who I respect, who had been through that particular gauntlet before. Um, And one thing I noticed about all of them is that they make time to exercise every day. Um, And I will say transparently, I was very good about that for the first three quarters of the cycle. Um, Now I have not been so great. But I think making that time part of your routine when you get in a new place, because things are so jumbled up, is really important. Um, I also, you know, I make my space that I'm working in, like I have scented candles in my office and I try to make it a place that feels calming even the midst of a storm to me. Um, and then to be honest, like I, I love this work so much. And so for me, in a way, when I'm on a good campaign with people who are passionate about being there and a candidate I believe in, I find it really energizing and emotionally fulfilling. So in that way, it sort of feels like it is its own self-care. Sounds like you're in the right work. (laughs) (laughs) When it's good. It's one of those things that like when it's good, it's magic. And when it's bad, I'm questioning all my life choices and why I didn't become aware. So so given that we've done a little bit of a window into um, kind of the culture of working on a campaign and certainly uh, been plenty self-deprecating via the Tumblr, um, what would you say to folks who are considering working on a campaign or are considering, you know, volunteering and getting super engaged right now? Like, what should they be looking for? How can they advocate for themselves? And ultimately, how can they, you know, how can we all put our whole muscle and our whole uh, breath into uh, electing people that we really deserve? That's a great question. So the first thing I'd say to people who are thinking of working on a campaign or volunteering is do it absolutely do it. Um, I think if you were thinking about volunteering, then, you know, you're volunteering. So your time is yours. Um, And if the people working on the campaign are doing their jobs right, you should feel incredibly valued and offered a lot of resources when you come in um, because those are, that's how we do. So I think there's probably less a concern for people who are just thinking of volunteering. Um, For people who are, thinking of working on a campaign. I mean, we are in the sprint right now. You know, I think, like I said, what's great about campaign work for me is that, you know, we are living in just incredible, and I mean that as in like unbelievable times uh, politically in our country. And it can just 
it can make you feel so impotent. And one of the things that I love the most about working on campaigns, particularly when I started out as a field organizer, is the sense of empowerment that comes from it. I mean, from all the ridiculous amount of money that gets spent on campaigns right now, it can really still can come down to neighbors talking to neighbors and people knocking on each other's doors. And I think that's really incredible. And doing this kind of work, either as a volunteer or joining a campaign as staff, can give you an opportunity to channel the rage or despair or frustration or numbness or whatever it is that you're feeling in the face of uh, the Trump administration into something positive and productive. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the only way that I can, I personally can thrive and survive in this political era is feeling like I'm doing something about it all the time. And that's how working on a good campaign should make you feel. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your work in this field and um, your leadership and paving the way uh, for women in higher levels of this work. Um, and thank you for making us laugh as we do it. All the serious things. Appreciate you, Nancy. Thank you for reading it. Thank you so much, Kate. I was really impacted by several things in that conversation with Nancy. The realities for women and other marginalized folks in campaign work, the power of a campaign manager who allies with their workers, and the power of shared idealism that spurs us forward more powerfully than our shared cynicism does. I loved that takeaway. I wanted to learn more about some of the on-the-ground tactics and movement vision that can make up some of the best of campaign management. And so I also called up my friend Becca Rast, who is managing Jess King's run for Congress in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This is also the campaign that our volunteer producer for this episode, Guido Giorgenti, is the political and comms director of. Becca started organizing against the Iraq war when she was just 16 years old and now has organizing roots in labor, immigrant, and the climate justice movements. Here's our conversation. Hey, Becca, thanks for joining me. Hi, Kate, great to be here. I would love for folks to just get to know a tiny bit about your background, where you come from, and I'm not even sure, even though I know you, um, whether this is your first electoral campaign. So can you just tell us a little bit about the work that you usually do? Um, I've been a grassroots organizer since high school. I started organizing against the war in Iraq here in Lancaster, where I am, which is my hometown, and um, went to college, did organizing there, and then uh, worked at 350.org doing work in the youth climate movement for about three and a half years. And this is my first electoral campaign that I'm staff on, uh, my first job where I'm actually running a campaign and working full time on it. And so you went straight to campaign manager, <laughs> like yep. zero to 60. You must be super excited about Jess King's candidacy in order to make that kind of commitment. So would love to just hear too, like, how did you end up in the seat that you're in? And what are you excited about this campaign? Yeah, so funny story. Um, so I grew up Mennonite, grew up going to a progressive Mennonite church in Lancaster. And Jess's husband was actually the pastor at that church when I was in high school. And so I've known Jess since I was about 16 and always really admired her and 
when she decided to run for Congress, she approached me and my friend Nick. Nick also grew up going to that church, and both of us uh, have been doing organizing together. And when she decided to run for Congress, she knew that she wanted, she kind of was exploring it with us. And when she decided to run, asked us to be her staff. And I think, honestly, that her and the, her style um, of being a leader really in, has influenced the campaign culture overall. And part of that was choosing people who I wasn't the most qualified congressional campaign manager, but she knew that I would do the best job because of the work that I had done in the community and um, because of our existing relationship. Okay, so I love how you got just right to campaign culture because that's really what we're here to talk about. Um, and I have heard from multiple sources that the the team culture on the Jess King campaign is awesome, um, which seems to be reinforced and verified by the Instagram story that I saw yesterday of everybody doing karaoke at lunch. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's making me think like this juxtaposition of sort of, well, you can be happy and invest in the people working for you or you can do a lot, right, is like maybe not a true just juxtaposition. So I'm curious about, you know, how have you thought about building team culture and why do you think it's important? Like how does it fit into your goal, which is to win? So I'm 28, so I've been organizing for 12 years and I've experienced a lot of really bad culture um, on different extremes. Like people only caring about how people are doing and therefore not having a strategic orientation and always prioritizing people's well-being over strategy. And then the often common situation of only prioritizing strategy and getting things done over people's well-being. And for me, I know that there's a lot of people who want to work really hard to change the course of this country and that I just believe people will do better work if they're taken care of. And I don't mean that in a way, like we don't work eight hour days. We work longer than eight hour days, everybody on the campaign, but we mix fun into it. Like the field staff doing karaoke over lunch and we make sure to have food in the office so that if people are hungry, they can actually take care of themselves and have coffee and tea and those kind of things. So, but there is this idea that like the only way to get people to be productive is to just run them into the ground. And to me, that's really like, just so in line with mainstream culture rather than trying to create the type of communities that we want to create, which is treating people with respect and dignity. And I think part of this, like I said earlier, Jess herself, so she's been an executive director for about 20 years, and she thinks a lot about culture in terms of like what makes a good organization. I think just Jess affirms me as the campaign manager to say like people will do better work if they're taking care of themselves and she asks people how are you doing she doesn't like yell at them to get things done and I think she just as the candidate really works to model that and that supports me as a campaign manager to encourage a culture where people are taking care of themselves so I do think there's not this dichotomy between getting a lot of work done and taking care of yourself doesn't need to exist. They can coexist. And that doesn't mean we're not tired and that like we're not working really long days, but it does mean that we don't feel angry coming into work or resentful at other staff. And that feels like really important to me. Yeah, totally. I mean, just the amount of energy lost in people having side conversations, complaining about things and being upset and being distracted. I mean, yeah. Totally. Um, curious about what are some of the other practices, Becca? Like, does it, the way that you seed culture, does that happen in your staff meetings? Does it happen in like your strategy conversation? Like, what else goes into it? Cause I know you're doing more than just like giving people snacks. <laughs> yes. We do go to Costco every other week and buy a lot of snacks. 
which is very fun. And it's some part of someone's job. But so we have weekly, well, initially we had weekly team meetings every week, but now we have them every other week with the full team now that we're 14. Part of it is very basic. Like we do a go around to ask how people are doing at the beginning and just like check in a little bit. And I, as a manager and the other managers often try to share vulnerably like, oh yeah, I did have a hard week and I'm really tired, but I'm really grateful for these things. And then we do either celebrations or sometimes celebrations can be awkward because people are you know, shy. And so last week I did something, or two weeks ago, I did something instead where I made everyone share one thing that they were really proud of that they did that week and just like did it popcorn style. And that was really nice. So I think making space to celebrate success, we have integrated feedback into a lot of our check-ins, both like what could we do better and what did you do really well this week? And so making sure to have kind of a constant dialogue with staff about what's going well and what can be improved on and having that arc towards continuous growth. I think the other piece is that I'm really vulnerable and so is Nick and the rest of us have never worked on electoral campaigns either. So basically we're full, we're all new and we're really honest about that. Like we're like, yes, this is also my first time doing this. Like feel free to bring me feedback. And I, I think one of the harder things to balance has been how do I be honest about what I don't know while also really setting clear, a clear path for the team so that they have a clear path to walk down rather than feeling like we're all just figuring this out together. And so being really clear about what I don't know and need feedback on and what I do feel clear on and what people should implement. But I think that the culture of like, we are trying something new and it is exciting. Everyone's really bought into that. Totally. And is there a time, you know, toward the beginning of this campaign that you remember like having any clear choices or clear decisions to make that you feel like you could have gone into sort of like a mainstream work into the ground push kind of campaign culture or choose the path you're on now? Like, was there a moment or certain decisions that that were not obvious and, and legitimately hard? I will say one choice that people questioned a lot was having a field director so early. So um, Nick started on the campaign when I did. So at the end of June of 2017, when we launched the campaign. So it was us and Jess, and Jess was still working part-time at her job at the beginning. People that I would talk to from other organizations that we knew were interested in endorsing us, or just like when I was trying to learn how to be a campaign manager and trying to find mentors and stuff, people were like, you already have a field director? Like, what? And I was like, yeah, like we know that we need to build a volunteer army if we're ever going to win this race. And so having someone that's thinking about field from the beginning is really important, but usually money is prioritized over volunteers. And so we did hire a fundraising director in September and she's amazing. She's also done a ton of door-to-door organizing and has an organizing background, but we did make this choice that is very not normal, which was having a field director shape the beginning of the strategy and have an orientation towards how do we bring volunteers into our movement from day one. So I think that was kind of the most unique thing. And in some ways does change the culture because it's not just about electing Jess King. It's about building a larger political force that elects Jess King, but that also is about making the voter and the volunteer at the center of what we do. And what have you seen as a result of that? I mean, how's the volunteer army going? Like, what what are the successes and, and what are some of the challenges? Yeah, so we've had over a thousand people do a phone or, or door shift with us. 
which is amazing and crazy. <laughs> um, the last weekend of August, we called 130,000 voters in one weekend. We called about 100,000 voters in March. So we've been really building this and we have 23 regional teams that run canvases in their areas. So out of people's houses and they canvas almost every weekend or on the weekdays or run phone banks. I mean, I think the hardest thing is that no one had ever tried to build serious electoral infrastructure on the progressive side in this district. Like building volunteer capacity when nothing exists is both such a huge opportunity because you get to define uh, the culture and what you value and the style of the work, but you also have to train people on how to do it. And so I think that's been a big challenge for the field team and they've just rocked it. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about training? Because I do feel like you're do, you're investing in training in a different way than a lot of campaigns are. Yeah. So we built a training that kind of all of us built together, the folks who were there at the beginning, where which was partially modeled off of the Obama campaign. So in the Obama campaign, they did Camp Obama, which was like a two-day intensive training. We scaled it down to about a four-hour training. And in that training, people, we really start first with strategy and thinking about what makes a strong campaign and what makes uh, a kind of establishment campaign, how are we different, kind of laying that out. And then we really get into stories. So we have everyone uh, learn how to tell their story of self. We all as trainers share our stories at the beginning of the trainings. And then our scripts for canvassing all hinge on people telling a very short, like two sentence story about why they support Jess and then asking folks at the door what, what do you care about? What's impacting your community? And so we really start our training from this place of why are you here? Why are you invested? And I remember, maybe it was the first or second time we did this, there were a bunch of amazing moms there and all of them started telling stories about their kids and they just all started crying. And they were like, oh, I didn't even realize that this is why I was doing this. And like, I'm so glad that like other people are here because they care about their kids and just the power of inviting people to talk about why they care um, is so basic, uh, but really has created an important foundational culture for the campaign of a lot of our volunteer leaders were asked, you know, almost a year ago, like, why do you care and why are you part of this? Can we kind of interrogate that and share that with each other? Um, and then when we do um, town hall meetings or when we do house parties, we often ask volunteer leaders, like, can you share your story of why you're involved and what matters to you? Would you tell us a little bit of your story, either your something between your two-sentence version and your full version, just so we get a sense of what does one of these stories sound like? So um, I grew up here in Lancaster, and I care a lot about the people that I went to high school with and the people that I grew up with. And I see a lot of my friends and former classmates really struggling to get good jobs and take care of their families, get good quality health care. So I'm, I really am working for Jess King because I think everyone in our community um, deserves as access to quality jobs and quality health care. So that's a very short version. The long version that I often share like at a leadership training would be about how um, I... Uh, grew up in this community and I have the values that I have because of this community, but I really wanted to leave once I graduated from high school because I felt like um, I needed to see other places and I wasn't sure um, if I could live in this more conservative place. And so I left for about eight and a half years. And when I was gone, everyone would say to me, oh, well, um, the place you're from will never be progressive. You'll ne like, well, they'll never elect a good Democrat. Like, it's always going to be conservative. So 
I think I really was told, like people created a story about the place that I was from. And when I didn't live in Lancaster, I just really, it really deeply affirmed how much the values of this community are the reason that I care um, about economic and racial justice and why I'm an organizer. And the church that I grew up in is absolutely the reason that I'm an organizer because of the values they taught me. And so that helped me realize that I need to come back because there's so many people in this community who have shared values of treating people well, loving their neighbor as themselves. And we needed to create a political outlet for that because so much of that service work and that community work had been depoliticized. And I saw the right really politicizing faith. And um, I, I realized that I need to move home and move my community's values, which I knew were aligned with my politics, into actual political action. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you would put it this way, but part of what I felt hearing your story too and caring about the people you grew, grew up with is like, love for folks oh yeah (laughs) like yeah I mean I think that people really do just so we're the only congressional district in the country that's never gone for a democrat are you serious yeah but we also had Thaddeus Stevens was the rep from this district who was like the major slave abolitionist and he's buried like two blocks from our office so they're a very very interesting um legacy in this place of what politics is. It's kind of old school Republican. And Lancaster County resettles 20 times more refugees per capita than anywhere in the country. And that is based like very much because of the Mennonite and Amish and Brethren faith tradition. And um, there are, I know people personally who resettle Syrian refugees who also voted for Donald Trump. And so there really is a divide and we do not operate our politics on a right left spectrum but on a bottom top spectrum how do we talk about people who have been left out of politics and abandoned by kind of the political elite and that's who we organize into our campaign so i think we do this from a deep place of love and understanding that the national party has not does not understand the place that we're from and so we need to do it differently And so we're not going to hire political operatives from the National Democratic Party because they won't know how to do the type of organizing that we need to do here. I would say another kind of core tenet that Nick and I and the whole team talk about is like not organizing from a place of scarcity. Like I think so often in conservative rural places, there's organizing for like there's only so many volunteers, so we can only do so much. And we're like, no, people are just waiting to be asked. They're, being, they're waiting to be asked to come into community. They want to be involved in politics, especially in this moment, for many, many reasons. And we need to give as many opportunities for as many people to get involved in as many different ways as possible. And how do we create as many on-ramps that are like clear and, and succinct as possible? And that's really been the philosophy of the campaign from the beginning. And that comes from a place of like believing in this place when other people don't. Mm, that's awesome. Are there any times, Becca, that you have felt, you know, that you've, that you would look back and feel like you made a mistake? Well, I think that it happens all the time and that's fine. And I think figuring out how much hierarchy to create and decision-making has been, um, I don't think I've made major mistakes on that, but I think I could have done more work at the, especially when our staff like started getting really big over the summer. I wasn't always like, okay, when should we make collective decisions versus having like a leadership team that makes decisions and, you know, wanting to shy away from that campaign culture where the campaign manager just decides everything and then no one's bought in. And so finding that balance has been 
um, it's really, really important to me. And I think um, I have staff that help me think through that. And so I think one of the biggest learnings I have is like lean on your staff. Don't ask them for too much, but like have them, they can see things you can't see. We said we were going to mention this redistricting piece because oh, your yeah. the composition of your district literally changed mid-campaign, which is... Yeah super intense. Um, and then also just thinking about like the makeup of the region that you're in. And I'm, and I'm not sure the, the demographic makeup of your team, but thinking about in rural Pennsylvania, like what are the dynamics of race and class and language and um, gender and all of the things that we sort of work with in our issue-based organizing. And a lot of times campaigns are seeing in like a very 2D way and don't have complex analysis around other than like, hey, we're in Harlem, so we should hire a black field organizer. Um, and so, yeah, what would you share about just how it's been to sort of work with a shifting district and also work with uh, like totally distinct communities in that district? Yeah. So, um, for folks who don't know, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, was mandated mandated the governor and an independent commission to draw new congressional lines because they were unconstitutional. So Pennsylvania has 51% Democrats, 49% Republicans, but only five of our 18 members of Congress are Democrats. And so it's super uneven. And so this redistricting happened. And we kind of didn't think this was going to happen before 2018. People were like, yeah, probably not going to happen. Oh, but it happened. So in late February, we got the new maps. I remember map day, very serious, very, you know, vividly. And we got a new district and we were the only district to become more Republican in the whole state. So we went from a Republican plus five district to a Republican plus 14 district. The new district is all of Lancaster County and then Southern York County. And people say that Southern York County is part of how Donald Trump won Pennsylvania because it's very rural working class and former manufacturing. Um, so our district became very much whiter. So it's 92% white now. So... Um, we knew that we need to keep running in the district because Jess is from Lancaster County. It's the place she cares about. She has done serious work in Lancaster City around the poverty rate. So Lancaster City has a 30% poverty rate, which has gone up 50% since 2000. And that's a big reason why Jess decided to run for Congress. Um, there's real issues of poverty across our district. And um, that's really come from the loss of manufacturing jobs and bringing in um, service jobs that don't pay as well. So... Um, we knew we had to dig in. And um, the part of why we hired local folks is because we knew that they would be better at organizing across both rural and urban places if they grew up here. And there really is a racial divide between our more rural areas and our city. And then the ring suburbs are a bit mixed race. We have a field organizer whose job it is just to like do hype and, and relationship building here in Lancaster City with churches, with business owners. Him and Jess are going on kind of a business owner tour this afternoon. Jess knows a lot of folks in that community are in, in our community here in Lancaster City already um, through her work doing small business development. Um, there's four people of color on our staff. 11 of our staff members are from this district. Um, and so we have been intentional about it. And also it's a very interesting balance to um, have a very white district um, with real um, urban poverty and racism. And we don't shy away from being honest about the fact that we need to tackle racism in our community and that the wealthy and well connected have divided working people against each other. Um, mm. And Jess just personally takes that really seriously. Like that's a big part of who she is as a person. And, and she really cares about um, 
people. And so, and a lot of her work has been supporting women and men of color to start small businesses because they're really um, not represented in our economy. So I think it's just been part of our campaign and it is still totally a balance, like, and it's not easy. And we have a number of, a couple of Spanish speakers on our staff um, and a big uh, Spanish speaking volunteer team because there's parts of the district, especially in Lancaster city where you definitely need bilingual canvassers because uh, there's a big Dominican and Puerto Rican community. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I mean, we're not perfect and it's not easy. And I like do not claim <laughs> to be doing it perfectly. And there really is a real balance between um, persuading Republicans and independents to vote for Jess and doing that low turnout voter work. But we do not see them as an either or. We see them as something that are both really important. And so from the beginning, we've been making sure to do uh, both both those pieces of organizing. Well, it makes me think too, just thinking about the redistricting piece and, and some of the just like the really different experiences that are happening in the district that you work in and that, that you love. Like, um, you know, come November, you're going to win or lose this round. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the, how do you see like the work that you're doing now in building volunteers, the conversations that you're having, the story that you're spreading about this moment in this district? Like thinking about, you know, encountering racism thinking about the needs around poverty, like are there pieces of this campaign that are designed to be really transformative over the long term, regardless of whether you win or lose, right? Like how are you conceiving of, okay, here's our game through November, but here's the way we're planting seeds to actually transform this community for the long haul. Oh yeah. And that's been a goal since the beginning. And I guess it's also a piece of why we didn't just have a really run them into the ground transactional culture, because we knew that we're all going to still live here. So from the beginning, a big goal has been developing leaders who see themselves as part of both electoral and social justice campaigns. And that's really, really important to us. And especially when the redistricting happened and we sat down and we were like, okay, are we going to still run in this district? And it was very clear that we were going to run in the district. She wasn't going to run in a district where she didn't live because that feels wrong. It is wrong, I think. And so we dug in and we were like, okay, what makes this worth it? And a big part of it was like, we can develop hundreds of leaders through this campaign who will have experience canvassing, talking to people, you know, running staging locations, launching canvases from their house, telling their personal stories, understanding how electoral politics works. That will have a really positive long-term impact on how local politics happens from borough council races to city council to school board to um, county commissioners. And so we just knew like, it has been an intention from the beginning that we support people to stay involved after the election and that this volunteer army and community that we're building um, can continue on. And a big part of that is that we're doing politics differently and showing that it doesn't have to just be transactional and um, like you do this and I'll give you this and whatever, but that it can actually build community. And our regional teams have totally built community with each other, a lot of them, and have met people that they didn't know before and like gotten their neighbors involved who never wanted to be in politics. Like I think 90% of our volunteers probably have um, never volunteered on a political campaign before. And so they're just like involved in new ways and challenging themselves and everyone takes risks and we really value taking risks. And so I think there's just no question that we've already won in the sense that like we've gotten so many people involved in electoral politics who um, didn't see it as their role 
And we do not ever treat it like it's the only thing that's the most important, but it is really important. I think I really think about government as something we all have responsibility for rather than as an other. And that was a transformation for me. Um, and I think it's still money in politics and all the ways that our governments are structured make it hard for it to be actually accessible. But I think I want to operate from the place where we can actually create a government that actually works um, of and by the people. And that's what I'm striving for every day and what we're trying to show people as possible. So that's a powerful note to leave on. I do have one concluding question, um, which is that we're going to also be talking with the Campaign Workers Guild and uh, in thinking about campaign culture, it's a real breath of fresh air to be talking to you as a manager who's really thinking about doing this differently, really looking out for taking care of folks. Um, and certainly a huge part of healthy culture is also um, worker power. And I think, were you all the first campaign that unionized? Second. Second, second congressional. Second. Yeah. Was Randy Bryce the first one? I think so, yeah. Okay. So second congressional campaign to have a unionized workforce. Yeah. Um, huge deal. Brand new movement that's happening. Um, as a manager, I mean, I heard that you were very amenable to the process. You also had a really different size team at that time. Yeah. You, were you three people? Four. Four people at that yeah. time. Um, and you all know each other really well and have strong trust in relationships. So it's, so just for folks listening, like it's, there's, there's some uniqueness there. Um, but how has your experience been in, in being supportive of your staff unionizing? And I'm also curious if you'd have any message for other campaign managers about how to work with that process. Yeah. So I've just, I've worked a lot with unions, especially when I lived in Rhode Island, big union state. And so did a ton of kind of support work for unions. And so when my staff came to me and said, we want to organize and become part of a union, I was like, great. And then I realized I couldn't be part of the union. And that made me very sad. But I will say having a union is awesome. Like um, it gave me, honestly, like on campaigns, it's really hard to have an HR department. And so having a contract, just like capacity wise and the length of the campaign. So having a contract that laid out how we're going to deal with grievances and conflict what our base salary is, what our protocol is around days off on different months, um, what our sexual assault policy is. Having all that stuff um, worked through in a contract that I get to operate from is awesome. And it actually helps me do my job better because there is structure in place um, that I know how to handle things. Luckily, we've basically not had to use any of the core pieces of the contract. And I would just say to managers, like, it is a having your workers be organized and agree to a contract around the general parameters of how a campaign operates um, is super helpful. And like my staff understand that we're going to, we're not paying like the best salaries in the universe because we need to make sure to buy supplies for our volunteers. But we do have a base salary that's very clear and um, a healthcare stipend and, you know, basic things, mileage reimbursements. And for me, it helps, um, me hold myself accountable to the standard and help staff have a way to, to, and I think the other thing is, especially because I'm friends with some people on staff, but don't know other people as well, having a level playing field to operate from is really important. The other piece that I'll say about the union contract that I appreciate um, is that it just gives the workers space to check in with each other, the workers, the rest of my staff, to check in with each other and make sure there's no challenges. And our shop steward, Julia, does a great job just like making sure um, that people are doing well. That's awesome. 
And do you feel like it's cost you anything? I mean, I think that feeling of being like, I'm totally pro-union and then being like, wait, I'm management? Like, I think that that's, a, that's really real, right? Yeah. Uh, no, it definitely hasn't cost us. Like we, I already wanted to pay our workers a decent wage and figure out how to get a health, like getting healthcare is really complicated, but we have a stipend that some people have access to and wanted to do mileage reimbursements and all this stuff. So I didn't feel like I lost anything and it just helped. It's, it helped it be clearly structured for me. And there's political benefits too. Like when we get to tell unions that we're talking to about endorsement, just like, I'm proud to say that we are the second congressional campaign in the country to unionize and we walk the talk. They're like, that's awesome. Like really? And so um, it's great. And I'm really, I'm really grateful to everyone who took risks to start the Campaign Workers Guild because I think it's really, um, really important. And I think there isn't isn't as much conflict between management and staff on our campaign because we've really tried to build a community and not Mm. just a transactional culture. Well, thank you so much, Becca, for sharing your your limited time with us in this season of like the last weeks of the campaign. We wish you uh, incredible luck in the election and also uh, a deep rootedness and sustenance to keep going and building in Lancaster for, for the rest of your life. We're with you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for having me on. And I'm excited to hear from the other folks in the series. Big thank you to Becca Rast and Nancy Leeds for joining us today. And to our sponsor, Groundswell Action Fund, who's resourcing visionary political organizing led by women of color, low-income women, and transgender people across the country. If you're staying tuned into this series, you know that last week we talked with Sunrise Movement about electoral versus movement strategy. It's an excellent conversation, so check out that episode. Next week, you'll hear us tackle the movement to unionize campaign workers. And later on in the series, we'll talk with candidates about their experience running for office. Finally, the day after the election, we will process together the impact of victory and loss. Join our email list to get election survival tips sent right to your inbox once a week at healingjustice.org elections. You can also see our upcoming episodes and guests listed there. Again, that's healingjustice.org elections. Talk to us. You just spent a bunch of time listening to us talk at you. We would love to hear back what struck you about this conversation. Um, what are you thinking about? What would you add, right? Find us on Instagram at Healing Justice, Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook, or at HJ Podcast on Twitter. And we're using the hashtag Surviving Elections. We would love to engage with you there. Thanks so much for being here with us, for committing yourself to the deep work of staying engaged politically in uh, really intense times, and also taking great care for yourself and your community along the way. We'll hear you next week.